From Share Profits, brought to you from Wales by 30 Yards, this is the Share Profits Radio Show, Episode 5, for Wednesday, the 14th of August, 2019. And here's your host, Tom Winifred. It is indeed Tom Winifrith with the fifth edition of Share Profits Radio, brought to you not from Wales by 30 yards, uh, but from Greece. I should be back in the Principality with next week's show. The big story over the past week on the markets has been the short attack on Burford by Muddy Waters, uh, Mr. Carson Block. The response from all parties has been pretty predictable. We have folks like Roger Lawson at ShareSock, who is a constant uh, opponent of short sellers, who says what we need to deal with this issue is more regulation, uh, because it may be that Muddy Waters in some way transgressed the law. Burford's defence has in large part been to throw as much mud as possible at Muddy Waters, suggesting that there was some sort of market manipulation Uh, There were bogus trades placed, uh, and that this is the real issue. Uh, It's not the real issue. The real issue is whether Burford's accounts give a fair view of the state of the company. For what it's worth, there is plenty of regulation out there to deal with market manipulation by short sellers. If you are putting out false information, and information you know to be false, Uh, and looking to profit on the back of it, you are breaking the law. The regulation exists there. Uh, Market abuse does exist. Uh, There are some people who spread false bear rumours in order to profit from short positions. I don't think Muddy Waters is one of them. Uh, The dossier which it prepared seemed to me very detailed and thorough, and it certainly was not putting out information it knew to be false. Uh, But there are some people who profit from short-selling by spreading false rumours. Equally, of course, uh, there are rather more people uh, who seek to profit uh, on the long tack. People who are long of stock and put out false information in order to try and influence the share price. One need only think of today's output on the LSE Asylum. This is something primarily done by private investors Uh, But it is done at an institutional level as well. No one ever says you should go after these people. Uh, My view is the regulators should go after all of those who transgress the law, uh, whether they be on the long side or the short side. And they have the ammunition to do so already. Uh, The laws already exist. There's no need for more regulation. That's so much hooey. It would achieve nothing. Uh, Short sellers, in my view, uh, do perform a valuable function. Uh, There are an armory, there's a battery of people trying to talk up stock. Not only does the company have its RNSs, which are sometimes completely accurate, sometimes, shall we say, somewhat over-optimistic, occasionally outright lies, uh, but there are brokers publishing buy notes, PR uh, people, Placing stories with the Deadwood Press, the PR cocksuckers, which are favourable to their client. There are all those paid-for interviews you do, 
uh, with Edison uh, or with Proactive Investor, where companies are asked very simple questions and the interviewers lap it up and say, my, your shares are cheap. Of course, they're paid to say that. Uh, and then, of course, you have the existing shareholders, the army of existing shareholders who go onto bulletin boards and post raptastic nonsense. You have conferences where companies can present. There is so much a company can do to talk up its share price, uh, normally uh, something paid for by grateful shareholders, but there is an enormous amount of push on the, on the buy side. Uh, it, it helps to have a counterbalance. If there are companies who are being over-aggressive with their accounting, uh, or which are frankly just telling lies, creating fictitious profits, not generating cash which matches the profits, etc., they deserve to be exposed. Because if they're not, their shares just keep on going up and up and up, and investors put money in at ever higher prices and will eventually lose that money. Because in the end, whether a company is an over-promoter or a fraud, it will unravel. Bear Raiders, in terms of uh, perform therefore a useful function in stopping the excess that one gets in any particular stock or any particular market. They perform an even more valuable function when it comes to exposing outright frauds. If frauds are not exposed, uh, they will continue to raise money, both in debt and equity markets, and then that money will be wasted or stolen or put to some other purpose. Uh, that is capital misallocation. I would far rather that all monies raised by companies were raised by good companies so they could expand, create jobs, pay taxes, reward investors, all sorts of things which are good for society and good for all. <clears throat> in exposing the overpromotes, in exposing the frauds, therefore, uh, short sellers provide a valuable function. Share profits, the site which I edit, uh, fits into this in a rather different way. Most of the companies which we expose, uh, and the role of share profits is primarily to expose fraud and overpromote. Most of the companies which we expose are ones which you simply can't short. If a company is a small company, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to get the borrow. It is unlikely that anyone will be able to get a short position. I know that when we go after some shitty little company on AIM, one of the natural responses of both the company and its PR people, but also of its supporters on bulletin boards, is just to say, ah, oh, they're short of the stock. This is part of the global shorting conspiracy. But in most cases, the companies which we expose on share profits are ones which simply aren't shortable. We operate on a different business model. It's not that we're short and we hope to make money from uh, these stocks falling. It's that we want to expose these companies so that our readers don't uh, uh, invest their money unwisely. Uh, and so that if they are bad companies, they are, yes, driven out of business so capital is not misallocated. And the money which is thrown at smaller AIM companies is thrown at good smaller AIM companies. If our material is good enough, people will continue to subscribe to the website and we have a viable business model. That's how we operate at Share Profits. We're constantly accused of being part of some global shorting conspiracy. I'd say 80% of the stocks which we write about on the Bear Tag 
are ones which are completely unshortable. It's just an excuse. Company CEOs like to say, oh, our shares aren't performing very well because there's a short attack, there's a bear attack. It's a favorite line of scallywags like David Lenigas to say this, but it's not one uh, that is in many cases true. We will have uh, on this uh, uh, edition of Share Profits Radio one man who is generally a bull, but we'll talk about the ethics of AIM in the stock market with him. We'll have one man who is generally a bear. He is a fraudster. It's part two of our interview with Sam Antar. This podcast is free to access, and I'm delighted that more and more people are listening to the podcast. Uh, we're able to bring it to you for free because it's sponsored by Riverfork Global Global Capital, which is the leading provider of funding to junior listed companies. Uh, it provides short-term loans, asset-backed loans, convertible debt, royalty, and equity financing. People tend to say that all such fundings are death spirals. They're wrong. There are many different funding instruments you can get out there, and I stand by my view that Riverfort is very much best of breed in this category. Best not for itself, but best for the shareholders in the companies which it is assisting. If you are, and that's why I'm very happy to have Riverfort sponsoring this podcast. If you are the finance director or CEO on the board of a junior company on AIM or the standard list, and you are considering your funding options, during the summer, Riverfort will be hosting a series of masterclasses, both online and in person, to help company directors understand how to access and optimize funding for their companies. Please reference this podcast and contact info at riverfortcapital.com for more information. I'll come back to Burford later on in the podcast, but before then, uh, from the depths of depravity of aim to something more uplifting. Okay, my first guest today is Malcolm Stacey. Share Profits readers will know Malcolm very well. He is our token bull on the website. We like to show some diversity. Uh, he's also the most senior journalist on the website. I've only been in this game for about 30 years. Uh, I am a mere pup compared to Malcolm. Malcolm, when did you first start journalism? Well, I'm afraid to say 1962. I was uh, working as a freelance journalist at Doncaster, an agency, and I found myself writing things for the Daily Express, the Financial Times, the Daily Mail, the news on in those days, even the Financial Times. I was only about six so 1962. Uh, do you ever think about retiring? Well, no. I mean, I don't work nowadays. I just work for the uh, wonderful website that you uh, own and look after. Um, but uh, apart from that, I do very little. A bit of presentation, a few radio interviews, a few television interviews. I'm trotted out sometimes, which is a bit of a joke. But there we are. They must be very short. Um, and, of course, you write some novels. Now, look, one thing that um, is uh, uh, clear in your work is that whilst I suspect you're not the only Christian on the Share Profits uh, website, you are the most um, open about your faith, uh, and you wear it very much on your sleeve. 
Do you believe it's possible to serve both God and mammon? Well, yeah, that's an interesting question. There have been uh, books written on the subject, uh, some of which I've read, uh, by people who work on the stock exchange and uh, are billionaires, some of them. And uh, they, they say that um, it's, it's fine, you know, because if you read the Bible, there's uh, Jesus' story about the three chaps who were given talents of gold. One buried them and didn't do anything about it, and the other invested it. And uh, the one above him invested it even more speculatively. Uh, and the one who did the best was favoured by God, and the other one came to a stick again. So uh, I think capitalism is anything that uh, God sneers about. What he doesn't is people who don't make the most of their talent. So in a sense, uh, the, the, the moral of that parable is that uh, we're doing God's work in investing in aim-listed penny shares. Um, but, but isn't there, a, there is a, surely there is a thing, uh, the root of all evil is the love of money. Um, and if we look at the sins, uh, the Ten Commandments and all of these things, greed features as something we shouldn't go. And so many of those people who are involved in the world of shares do seem to me to be motivated purely by greed. I know it's, it's appalling, isn't it? Some of those billionaires wouldn't think of spending a penny on anything other than themselves and their family. Um, and I just can't understand that. How, for instance, can you get rid of uh, millions, uh, nearly a billion pounds? You know, you can't do it. It's almost impossible to spend it on yourself. They do it and they didn't think of of, you know, of investing it or giving it or whatever to any charity. It would make so much difference to some dying child um, to get the right uh, treatment from abroad, say. And yet these people just turn a complete blind eye to it. It's mystery to me. Is there also not also that some people who are motivated by greed would take the view that it doesn't really matter how you make money, and they would turn a blind eye to what you and I might deem just basic ethics, telling the truth, things like that. That's right. And of course, I mean, if you invest in an arms firm, what sort of uh, morality is that? If you invest in a tobacco firm, when it says on clearly on the packets, it might well kill you. What kind of uh, ethics is that? There's no morality in that. You know, uh, companies that test on animals and make uh, rabbits blind and, and monkeys go mad uh, just for the sake of uh, cosmetics. It's, it's, it's a crazy world, but we don't have to subscribe to it. We can invest in those companies which we think will do a bit of good. Is there not a, a counter viewpoint, uh, and I'm not making this uh, uh, saying that I necessarily believe it, but if I was given the opportunity to invest in you know, a tobacco firm, Imperial uh, Brands, the yield is 9%, uh, the chances are that I'm going to make more money from that uh, than I might from investing in uh, something else, Tesco, which we could agree is probably an ethical firm. Um, and if I'm going to make more money, if I am prepared to contribute some of that to good works, would not God smile on that? Um, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, that's that's greed again, isn't it? That's putting money at the yield above 
um, what you know is right. And, and what is right is that we don't kill people. What is the point of making lots of money and, uh, you know, sitting on it in the bank when you know that to help you make that money, you've killed uh, a few um, people across the world, perhaps hundreds, thousands, I don't know. Um, but, um, you know, to me, it's, it, it's not right. We shouldn't do it. And just because AIM is stuck with the greedy morons who perpetuate and think it's fun to do doesn't mean to say that we should support them by buying their shares, which are usually worthless anyway. Right. Is um, no, I was saying you were a bull earlier. You seem uh, you're now becoming as cynical as me. Uh, so, would you say that for your personal portfolio, your your initial stock filter is I'm not going to invest in companies which I deem to be unethical, and that's, that's a golden rule. Right. Yeah, but uh, for everybody, ethics are different, aren't they, um, sometimes? Uh, for instance, I invested uh, heavily in British Energy, which was a nuclear uh, company, of course. My wife objected violently, violently <laughs> literally violently, to that. And, um, <laughs> you know, uh, but the, the point I, I took the view that it, it's not a dirty fuel, and if there's an accident, so be it. But let's hope not, you know. It's the sort of thing I can pray won't happen, and it hasn't. Unless you live in Japan, um, or at Three Mile Island, or at Chernobyl. It, it's, um, it, it's, uh, so there are, there's another one, I think you're a vegetarian, you don't invest in firms that, um, as you would see it, kill animals. That's right. I mean, for instance, you, um, you talk about Tesco. But Tesco sell loads and loads of free-range eggs, very cheap, not free-range eggs, very, very cheaply, from caged birds. Have you seen the appalling conditions those butchers have to put up with? Tesco yes. should better sell those things, um, you know, and all the supermarkets are, as far as I can see. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't invest in Tesco. Having said that, I do have some shares in the drawer somewhere. I never touch them, I never look at them, I, I don't like them. Okay, um, it is okay. We'll move away from the ethics uh, now. Are, given that you are um, perhaps the sort of investor who would uh, normally be seen as someone who might be seeking income in their portfolio, uh, what percentage of your portfolio is in safe blue chips, paying a dividend, that sort of company? It's more or less exactly half and half, half for penny shares and a bit of fun, half for the putsy, um, and nothing in between very much. I think those in between tend to be boring, don't move very much anyway. Uh, putsy shares don't move either, but as you say, have huge yields, you know, um, Shell, BP, people like that, huge yields, uh, six, seven, eight percent. I mean, compare that to the building society, and it's a very good stream of income. But you won't get it if you just invest in penny shares. But if you don't invest in penny shares, you won't have any fun, and you won't see a put it back because the jumbos don't turn into multi-packets. And I like to, I mean, my all-time call was overnight date, which was a hundred bag. And, you know, and um, uh, these things happen. If you've got 10 penny shares, and they all go to the uh, rail, completely disappear, but one is a 10 bag, and you're up. And of course, they don't all go to the rail because you're choosing with a bit more um, you know, wisdom than that. 
Uh, and yet, so, you know, if you have 10, 10 shares, you're going to be all right. I, I almost guarantee it. No, I never say that. Easy land, do we? But, um, you know, it's, uh, it's a very, very good chance. If you have 10, 10 shares, one of them will be a multi-bagger. That's very much the Niger Ray view, is that uh, the attraction of smaller companies is that you accept that if you buy 10 uh, penny shares, uh, five or six of them are likely to lose you some or all of your money, maybe even seven. But if you have the, you know, a couple which do very well and one which does exceptionally well, you're still ahead on the game. That's right. Yeah. Never quarrel with Niger. This is brilliant, you know. Um, uh, if he says that, I'm very encouraged by that. I'm not so happy with Warren Buffett. I mean, he made his money with um, Gillette, uh, they say. Now, imagine him doing it today. Get nowhere, would he? Because Gillette are going to war because people stopped shaving, you know. So it was just luck that he ended up in that position. And he probably is still motivated and carried along by luck. Uh, but I think Nigel takes a, you know, a pragmatic and a sensible view of it. I think Nigel would also, though, say that as he's got older, I suspect that he, well, he's got so much money he doesn't really need to worry about it. But generally, as people get older, they would put more of their money into those safe blue chips. Uh, you're, you having 50% in small caps is the sort of th uh, thing I would expect from a younger person on the grounds that you could lose it all if we got into a prolonged bear market and smaller companies just were hitting the wall, they couldn't refinance. You could lose all of your penny share portfolio. It is conceivable. Uh, if you're uh, 20 or 30 or 40, you can make it all back. But uh, uh, not trying to be offensive, but if you're in your 60s or 70s, uh, and I know you, you're sort of creeping towards that, there's less time to make it back. I'm in my extremely late 30s. Right. Oh, okay. You're a young person. Okay, that's fine. Then it's a very balanced portfolio. No, um, I, mean, I, don't, I mean, I, I tend to be more cautious, but I try to shove that part of me into a drawer. And anyway, penny shares are not as motivated by a sudden crash as the giants, the ones. They're the first to go. Penny shares are often um, unaffected by it. At the same time, if the is rising, they're also still unaffected because people switch out of pennies and into FTSE shares because they think they can make money without the risk of penny shares. But anyway, I'm 50-50, so I can't lose that anyway. If I lost all my penny share portfolio, I'd still have the um, the other half. And, you know, and I've, I'm not being dynamically successful. I should have been a lot more successful. I had a bit more guts during my career. Um, but I, it's enough to keep me going to the rest of my life, you know, even if I lost 10%, uh, 199%. So, you know, I don't care. <laughs> okay, you don't care. Uh, would you say you become a better investor as you got older? No, because when I first started, I had beginner's luck, and I suddenly found myself with an awful lot of money from a very, very small stake. It was the time of the technological boom, if you remember, just after big bang um, in the city. And um, so I did extremely well, and I've been living on that ever since. In 2008, I nearly lost it all, but I managed to get it all back again. 
Um, so, you know, if you hadn't been to that 2008 crash, it would be uh, up there with the big stars, but of course, lost the lot, had to start again. Um, but that's the fun, isn't it? You know what? It's only money. It is only money. Okay, what would you say is your biggest weakness as an investor? Uh, greed. And that <laughs> means if the share's falling, uh, I just can't stand it. And I should sell it and cut my losses. But I, I just think of all the money I've lost and I hang on in there. And of course, it usually gets worse. So what I should be doing is following the trend. If the share is doing well, then I should pile more into it. And if it's doing badly, I should come out straight away. I don't come out straight away. I keep kicking the can down the road until it's worthless. Uh, that's happened so many times. My other fault is selling too early if a share's done well, because then caution kicks in. And I think, well, you know, I, I've doubled my money. I'll sell half of it. And it's a mistake. You know, it happened with ASOS. It's happened to so many of us with ASOS. We came out too early. Otherwise, we would be a lot better off than we are today. What price did you get into ASOS and what price did you get out? 7p, and I got out at about uh, 100p, I think. And it went on. 100p? Well, it went on to 12 quid, didn't it? Or more, higher. Anyway, much higher, yeah. Well, even going on to 100p, I mean, there will be so many people who I remember 7p, uh, Mark Watson Mitchell tipping it at 7p, and I said, You're barking mad. <laughs> But there were so many people who bought into his tip and uh, uh, they, they sold at 14p or 21p and thought they were heroes. Yeah. It's hanging on to 100p shows incredible restraint on your part, Malcolm. Yeah, it's probably laziness as well, you know. Um, but anyway, it's, it went up a lot more than that, didn't it? It did indeed. It did indeed. What's what, uh, in, in, so that's your biggest weakness. What's your biggest strength, do you think, as an investor? Uh, well, I'm, I'm cautious. I read the balance sheets uh, just like everybody else, but I, I, I count that as history. So I try to look forward and I, I look at my kids, what they're buying, I look at what my friends are buying, I look at how many people are actually at the checkout of the store rather than milling about inside, this sort of thing. So I do quite a lot of research on what's going to happen in the future. Uh, I, I research management. I try and find out good managers and things like that. I look at the whole board. Um, I try and look to the future. I think, that's, I think that's the secret, really. I'm not interested in it. So many firms did great a few years ago and then collapsed like a house of cards. Um, and I've not been involved with it properly. So, you know, I think that's the, that's the strength. In terms of research, so you actually go and visit companies which you're thinking of investing in. Do you, in terms of reading about them, clearly you say because you read the balance sheet, you must look at the report and accounts. Uh, is, what are your other sources of reading material? Um, of course, well, share profits, that goes without saying. Yes, I was going to say because you can't find anywhere else that actually knocks companies. Uh, certainly not to that extent, not with that much clarity. And uh, I think it's very, very important that people do subscribe to this. I know I'm, I'm not going to say, well, of course he would say that. But, you know, if you're going, the, the thing is, it's not what you make on shares that really count in the end. It's what you stop losing. And if you get a few red flags and take notice of them, even though the share still seems to be on the ascendancy, they're all 
all sorts of strange reasons, usually to do with vanity and, and uh, manipulation and all sorts of things. You get behind that, the writers get behind that and find out what's happening. And that's when you, you, you need to get out as soon as possible. Any one of your shares, uh, companies, uh, and some of them that you've uh, found fault with, I've actually uh, commended in the past, but, um, you know, you've got uh, deeper than I got, or the stories probably got worse. And if I read a story like that, I'm out, you know, I'm straight on to the itself. I think often uh, to, to, to be in, in your defence, I and mean, I'm thinking about one where we disagree, where you were a bull and uh, we were pretty brutal and right to be brutal, advanced oncotherapy. Uh, one of the advantages that we have is something that you'll know from your time working with Roger Cook, uh, whistleblowers. Uh, whistleblowers tend to come to me. Uh, Sam Antar's phrase, the three X's, ex-wives and lovers, ex-employees and ex-business partners and investors. And when they're aggrieved, they come to me and uh, uh, that gives me a bit of an edge. Yeah, we used uh, insiders, usually estranged wives. Um, but um, yeah, with the AVO, I, uh, I do say that I, I bought it at 2p and I think it went to 18p or something like that. So I did make an awful lot of money out of it. Then you started knocking it. Um, and um, it was at the time of the Global UK Investor Show as well. I was on the train. You started knocking it. And I couldn't, I couldn't get out between the train and the slow signals. And <laughs> I suddenly fell. No, uh, thank you, Tom. And uh, <laughs> I could have made even more money. But it's not when I lost money out. Another one is IQE. Now, I bought IQE at 16p. Uh, eventually, we started knocking as well and found all sorts of things wrong with it. By that time, it kicked into 14 bags. I sold most of them. Tom, I still have bought a few of those shares. I wish I hadn't. Um, but I certainly made a lot of money out of it. And that is a bit of a problem because uh, even with a rogue share, you can make an awful lot of money because they travel very fast and very far before it explodes. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things about uh, uh, even companies, and I'm not saying that IQE is a fraud, but even companies that are frauds, uh, if you've got a good fraudster behind them, their shares can be fantastic investments. Uh, yeah. Not investments, they can be fantastic speculations. Uh, it's a matter of can you get out before the serious fraud office swoops? Yeah, but we're back to ethics again, in a sense, aren't we? Because if you're making money out of it, some poor sap is not going to make money out of it. Because you yes. know, if, you lose money, if you make money, somebody's got to lose it, haven't they? Um, especially in that game. So, um, you know, it's probably best to stay away from them, really. It's just that it's so tempting to come in when there's been a, a, um, a crash because they kind of come back in big dishes and other ones all over the place, isn't it? You, you're unhappy with big dish. Um, but, uh, as far as I'm concerned, big, big dishes, big dishes, it is very, very clear. They misled investors ahead of a placing. Uh, and from my point of view, I would always say, you know, they said, uh, we don't need any more money. They've now published their report and accounts, and it's quite clear that before that placing, they were running on vapours. Yeah. Uh, and so it was the, state, the statement they made, forget about the rollout programme, which wasn't true either, 
they they misled investors. And for me, it's I don't know whether it's a moral thing. I mean, there is a moral thing. I don't want to give my money to a company which is run by a guy who misleads investors uh, because I'm going to be supporting him and he's going to carry on misleading investors. And I very much doubt he gives 10% of his salary to charity. But there's also a thing, if you catch them telling one lie, then the odds are that there are about 90 lies which you haven't caught them telling. And in the end, good companies don't need to lie to their investors, do they? No, absolutely. It's um, it, it's a difficult one. I um, commended Big Fish before I found out that they were lying. Um, and then, uh, of course, I dropped them like a, a hot cake. But the trouble is, I can't commend a share as I do on the site and then sell it straight away. So I have to hang on to it, even though it's, you know, everybody else is saying you were wrong and it's a, it's a stumor. Um, I have to hang on to it. At the same time, if I tip a share and it suddenly starts rising and I haven't put it in my portfolio, I usually wait at least a week, by which time the action's usually over. So it can be quite expensive being a, a share tipster. Um, and as far as big dishes concerned, um, you know, what well, I'm sorry I commended you, but then again, you can't do anything against people lying to you, can you? Well, uh, I, I, I don't think you have anything to apologize for because. I read your uh, uh, recommendation, and that was based very, very explicitly on what the company had said in its RNS. And if if it's, its RNS said rollout's going great, we don't need any more money. On that basis, there was a very credible reason for recommending the share. You know, you were right. It just happens that the company was telling complete load of lies. I know, there's nothing you can do about it, really, you know. Um, but I, I'm sorry I recommended it, but, uh, and I, um, but what can you do? Um, you, we, can, we can hope that Zach Meir, as their new digital communications officer, uh, gets the share price up to a level where you can get out. <laughs> I think that's a hope, not a, a, a belief. Is, um, you say... I, I sense a, a bit of despair in your voice. Do you think that uh, the world is getting more dishonest and that is reflected in the stock market? It's always dishonest, doesn't it? I think we're lucky and that we've got sites like ShareProfits who are finding out about it. Having said that, I, I do decry the decline of investigative journalism. I don't think there is any anymore. Um, you know, uh, Radio 4's dropped it. Uh, it dropped Roger Cook. And it's never been the same since, really. Panorama, it's been particularly program. Uh, I've been watching it lately. It's diabolical. It's all over the shop. And, uh, you know, and at the end of it, you're not sure whether the villain is really a villain or not. Um, don't, don't be too harsh on Panorama. They gave me a call a couple of weeks ago. Uh, they're doing a program and they were uh, suggesting they might come up and film me. Oh, good. Are you going to take a lot of that? I, I can't tell you what it's about, uh, and they may decide they don't want to film me after all. Once they see my face, they might think it's made for radio. Um, but uh, uh, so well, let's not write Panorama off completely yet. No, not as big as a big. Is there a big cash fee? No, I, no, just, just uh, I didn't, didn't think to ask that, Malcolm. I'll hire you as my agent next time. Oh, you always do that. Yeah, they're, they're only, the BBC will only pay uh, an interview fee if you ask for it. And then if they see your face um, uh, after they've made an offer, they'll double it. 
Right. Okay. Okay. Oh, like, I missed that trick. No, I was. I was just rather flattered. Anyhow, it matter to them. They're non-profit mate. They haven't got shareholders. You know, it doesn't. They don't care. Okay. I'll. I'll thank you very much for that handy tip. What is your biggest uh, uh, investment at the moment in the small cap world? Forget about your BP and your Shell. What's oh, your biggest uh, investments in the small world? Um, Oh, you put me on the spot there. I, I don't put huge amounts in them. I, I have loads and loads of them because the more fish you've got in your net, the more chance you're going to get a hundred bagger. Um, so um, there's not a lot. I've got. I'm afraid I've got feedback. I'm not happy about that. I've got quite a lot of money in there. I know you hate it. Um, I've got a lot of money in Abactar. Um, which is a Leeds um, um, veterinary company, which is suddenly into antibodies. And there's a huge market out there. If they never crack it, they don't seem to be doing very well at the moment either. Um, so there's two duff penny shares there for you to uh, avoid. <laughs> <coughs> feedback. Um, <coughs> sorry, is it one of the feedback? My reservation about that is that it is... Uh, a company that seems to live from placing to placing. Yeah, but uh, the, the trouble is, it's it's a medical pioneer, and I've got a big soft spot for medical pioneers. I I, I think it's because I'm getting older, I'm frightened of death and serious illness and this sort of thing. And the more we can put our money into finding cures for stuff, the better. And it, it, it's like oil fields used to be. If you hit a gusher then you're um, really in clover. So, um, you know, I've got a lot of medical pioneers. Um, you have to be careful. Just one license lost and the whole thing comes down like a pack of cards. But well, you've seen with motive buyer, you get one knock back from the FDA uh, and the share price completely craters. That's right, absolutely. And they never, they never seem to recover from that, you know. And, and, and what can you do? You, you're pioneering. You're looking into whether a cure works. If it does, you, 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 you know, that's the end of it. You're multimillionaires. If it, um, if, it, um, if it doesn't work, and that seems to be nine times out of ten, a hell of a lot of money has gone into research and development. And it's all been for nothing. And the share price goes through the drain. Is, uh, you seem to indicate you've got an incredibly large number of penny shares within your portfolio. Um, how do you find the time to monitor them all? I can't. I've got a hundred of them, and uh, I wait until I see the action on the share price, and then I look into it. Um, if it's falling, I get rid. Um, if it's uh, good news, then obviously I buy more, and that's the, the, the extent of it, really. I do research them for share profits quite thoroughly, but of course I can't. You're right, I can't. It's just that if, I, I, I do believe that if I can spread as much um, bread on the waters, a lot of it, some of it, occasionally, will come back to Germany. Don't you think that it might be a New Year's resolution just to maybe reduce your portfolio to 70 or 60, that you can follow that, that much more closely? When I'm an adrenaline junkie, that's the problem. I, I like uh, the thrill of the chase and all that stuff. <laughs> you only got 10 shares and the penny shares. Penny shares don't do anything for ages and ages and ages. In fact, they gently decay. <clears throat> but, um, you know, if you've got a hundred, I've got a much better chance of seeing some real shiners and sparklers come through the mist and, you know, hit the stars. So if you had to put your last penny on a penny share tomorrow, which would it be? Um, 
I'm going to go for Avatar. A-V-A-C-T-A. A-A-V-C-T is the epic. Avatar is a Leeds film. Uh, it's only yeah, a well, you're, but you're not biased because they're fellow northerners, are you? Oh, of course not. No, no. I, no, I, okay. I would never invest in their language, of course. That would, <laughs> that would be ridiculous. <laughs> okay, on that note of appalling bigotry, thank you very much for your time, Malcolm. We will speak again uh, very shortly and uh, keep writing at Share Profits. Don't well, go away. Well, I've had a great time, but uh, this wasn't it. Do not retire. You're not allowed to. Thank you. Speak to you soon. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Malcolm Stacey, the moral voice of Share Profits. Uh, I said at the start that I would get back to the Burford incident, uh, and I suppose uh, the time has come to say where I really sit in this particular battle. Firstly, uh, has Muddy Waters, uh, Carson Block, broken the law in any way? It seems to me that though instinctively I always side with the bear, if I'm to be fair, I think everyone has to be treated the same. I have reported a number of individuals to the FCA for market abuse, for uh, putting out tweets, research notes, other things, suggesting that people fill their boots with a particular stock and sell into that rise. Notably, I uh, reported SP Angel, the broker, for publishing repeated buy notes on what, to me, is a grossly overpromoted, worthless piece of crap, viz. Blue Jay Mining, setting ludicrously high price targets and selling its entire position into that strength. To me, that's slam dunk market abuse. I would therefore say that I do think that Muddy Waters may be guilty of the same offence. Uh, it's all very well saying that the company puts in its terms and conditions that it's able to close its position at any time. Well, that's fine. Uh, you can say whatever your terms and conditions are, but I don't think that that gives you any precedent over what is UK securities law. And the fact is, the hard and undeniable fact, is that on last Wednesday morning, uh, Muddy Waters published its dossier uh, it argued that Burford was arguably insolvent. It certainly raised a lot of red flags, and it left no doubt as to the fact that its position was bearish. On that day, Carson Block did a number of interviews with people, and he carried on maintaining that his position was bearish. And on that day, he closed the majority of the Muddy Waters short position. Uh, without telling anybody that perhaps the shares had fallen enough and it was time to think about closing your shorts. To me, uh, that is a pretty clear-cut case, uh, a pretty clear-cut breach of the UK market abuse regulations. Uh, just because I am instinctively always on the side of the bears rather than the bulls, because I'm a bear, they're my fellow bears, uh, we shit in the woods together. Just because of that, I can't uh, give uh, Muddy Waters a free pass. It seems to me it has done exactly the same as SP Angel, and it does have a case to answer. But that's not the real issue here. The real issue is Burford, which was uh, the biggest company on the AIM Casino until recent weakness. We've been sceptical about the company for uh, many, many moons, or many, many months at least, uh, and 
I found that the Muddy Waters research report was pretty compelling. Having said that, Burford came up with a pretty good rebuttal, all that hoo-ha about threatening legal action, etc., etc. That's what I expect from a company under attack. I don't think you take it terribly seriously. I think it would be very foolish to pursue legal redress, uh, but uh, the substance of its rebuttal was fairly good. Nonetheless, there are a number of points which remain outstanding, and it all comes down to revenue recognition. It seems to me that there is a fairly strong case for saying that Burford's revenue recognition policy is aggressive. It is booking wins on cases that have not yet been won. Now, it can say that based on past cases, it can make a fairly good assumption. This is fairly standard accrual of income, blah, blah, blah. But the problem is that each case is very different. That's something you'll pick up uh, in the second interview coming up, uh, that with Sam Antar. No one can think how any jury is going to act. Who would ever have thought that Jeremy Thorpe would have got off on his murder trial? Uh, it seems quite remarkable. Uh, what about that girl who um, murdered her flatmate or didn't murder her flatmate in Italy? Again, who could have thought how the jury was going to react? Ken Dodd in his tax case. Of course, Ken was guilty as hell, but he got off. Juries are funny things. I'm not sure that you can make those assumptions. And I note that other firms which were involved in the same sort of business at Burford don't make those assumptions. They book income when a case has been won and when they know there is some certainty. Uh, the, uh, that, to me, seems prudent. The other thing that is crazy, and I never understand this, is why are companies so keen to pay tax? I'm not advocating being a tax dodger or a tax avoider in any way. I'm not saying that Ken Dodd is my role model. Uh, all I'm saying is, why bring forward profits which you could perfectly legitimately not bring forward and therefore bring forward the point at which you have to pay tax on them? It seems a very, very curious form of cash flow management. The net present value of the business is... Uh, when the cash comes in. So why book profits ahead of the cash coming in, knowing that you're going to have to pay tax on it? It just is a very peculiar way of doing business, and it's the sort of thing that companies who are desperate to promote their shares so that they can either raise fresh equity or the management can dump shares would do. Not, of course, that I'm saying that Burford would do that. The other point is one actually raised by my good friend Roger Lawson of Sharesoft, uh, and it is that good companies do not have a gaping disparity between stated profits and cash generated. Burford does. Burford just doesn't seem to generate cash. It is always booking profits, but the cash just doesn't follow. It has continues to have additional requirements for capital, whether through the debt or largely, uh, largely through the debt, but occasionally through the equity markets, in order to fund its operations, pay its taxes on profits which haven't yet uh, translated into cash, and to pay its dividends. All of that is an unhealthy way to run a business. It's not what Warren Buffett would define as a good business. 
I don't think that Burford is going to go insolvent for uh, a second. I think it is hugely unlikely that that is going to happen. But what I do believe is Burford is a very, very ordinary business, which is accounting in an aggressive manner, which makes it look like a very good business. But I suspect that after the last week, uh, people are looking at the emperor's new clothes and are reaching a logical conclusion. That logical conclusion is Burford's a pretty ordinary business. And as such, there is no need to rush to buy the shares. Until some big news breaks, I suspect that the shares are pretty much dead money for both bulls and bears. Uh, bulls aren't going to see a re-rate in a month of Sundays because the company has lost that magic touch. Bears, well, the damage has been done. The company has fought back. Uh, what might change that? Well, events, dear boy. Events, dear boy. Uh, the Stevenson case in Argentina is thought to be one such event. If there is a big setback there for the company, well, that really would put a big question mark over its business model. Perhaps there might be some regulatory comeback. I have asked the Financial Reporting Council to look at the accounts of Burford on a number of matters. Uh, maybe the FRC will force the company to change its policies. Uh, those things, well, that's events, dear boy. They could provide a break to the downside, but I can't see any immediate rush, any immediate uh, uh, rush for that to happen. And therefore, I can't see the shares moving sharply either way uh, over the next few weeks or months. Dead money for both of them. Now, before we get on to my second guest today, I should just remind you that uh, this podcast is sponsored by Riverfort Global Capital. Uh, it's the leading provider of funding to junior listed companies. Uh, it provides equity and debt funding. Funding instruments include short, medium-term loans, asset-backed loans, convertible debt, royalty and equity financings. Uh, I'm happy for Riverfort Global, Global Capital to sponsor this podcast because I do regard it as the best of breed in terms of the alternative funding structures offered to smaller companies. If you are a CEO or an FD of such a company and you're listening today, uh, you should find out more. Uh, contact info at riverfortcapital.com. Tell them where you heard about this uh, and they can arrange either an online masterclass or a one-to-one -one discussion about how to take things forward. Uh, some podcasts don't, go, uh, uh, don't uh, fund themselves with sponsorship. Uh, they ask companies on uh, and ask them limp-dick questions, uh, allowing them to ramp their shares. I'd never go down that model. It sucks. Uh, now, for something completely and utterly different. Well, actually, not that different. It's part two of a two-part interview with my hero, And my main guest today is Sam Antar. We uh, did part one the other week. Now we come back to part two. Uh, you may remember Sam is the world's greatest living fraudster. And in that vein, uh, Sam, are you denying you're the world's greatest living fraudster? Well, I'm one of the very, very few that got caught but still avoided prison. There are plenty of great fraudsters out there that never got caught, 
but we don't know who they are. Then there's the ones that got caught but went to prison. We know who they are. And then there's the very, very few, the elite, that got caught and never went to prison. I got house arrest. That's you. You are the elite. Right. People asked me if I was smarter than Madoff. I said, of course I was. I avoided prison. He's in jail for 130 years. Okay, but are you smarter than Elon Musk? Because he's not in prison and he's worth an awful lot more than you are. Well, wait a second. Elon Musk is, a, live, is doing... A, Elon Musk is doing fraud in a different era where, where fraud has been effectively decriminalized. It, Are you saying it's in other words? In other words, the advantages of, of screwing shareholders are far, far easier today, and far, far more profitable because they're easier than when I back in my day. In my day, federal prosecutors used to put people in jail. The SEC used to regulate capital markets. Today, uh, today regulators and, pro and today federal prosecutors and regulators are nothing more than meter maids. They collect fines, relatively small fines, on things that used to be defined as fraud or crimes many years ago. Are you, so you're really saying it's like baseball, uh, hitting records from the 20s and hitting records now because the bats are so much heavier. It's unfair to compare with you and, you and Elon. You were as good a fraudster as Elon. It's just you had a lighter bat. Right, exactly. Exactly. Today's, today's crop of fraudsters are much more uh, in your face than the old day fraudsters. And that's because we have pussies running the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission. Okay, so it might, be, it, it might be a politically incorrect phrase, but I don't give a shit. Go ahead. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's fine. It's fine with me. Don't worry. Um, so Elon Musk, uh, we're calling him a fraudster. I mean, I'm not worried about libel here. Uh, it's not like we're, we're, you know, accusing some poor guy in Thailand of being a paedophile. Uh, it's, uh, it's not, but are we on fairly safe ground in saying he's a fraudster? I would say that we are on safe ground that he's a fraudster. On the basis of what? The funding secured tweet? The funding secured tweet, uh, exhibit one. Right, and that should be enough to get him sent to prison. It's a matter of it's a matter of opinion. It's a matter of public debate. It's fair game. Okay, what about his accounts? You obviously have read his accounts. You are the master of cooking the books. Uh, would you say that they give a full and fair view of the state of play at Tesla? No. First of all, accounting, uh, accounting unlike in accounting. Unlike arithmetic, the result is whatever you want it to be. Accounting is not math. It's opinion at best. It's judgments. Uh, and the accounting for Tesla is, is uh, troubling, to say the least. In what way is it troubling? Uh, there's issues with the warranty reserves, the recognition of revenues, stuff like that. Too, uh, too detailed to get into over here. But I did a lot of work on Tesla many years ago. And none of that is, none of those concerns have disappeared. One thing I would say is, if he is cooking the books, and I agree with you, he is cooking the books. Uh, if he is cooking the books, he's not doing a very good job of it. Uh, I, have, I have on Twitter numerous times suggested that he should hire you as his finance director or his CFO, uh, and you'd show Tesla making a profit quarter on quarter. If he's cooking the books, why isn't it making a profit? Well, first of all, it's first of all, 
the last year of the crazy Eddie fraud, we were losing so much money that the best that we can do is understate our losses rather than to show profits. Uh, you know, there's only, there's only limits to how far you can sharpen your pencil and uh, cook the books. And, so you're saying even if you up. were doing Tesla's accounts, it wouldn't be profitable right now? Well, me, I can do anything. I can make Tesla profitable in 15 minutes. But uh, not everybody's me. Okay. So with the mere more I'm not talking about economically profitable. I'm talking about financial statement profitable. But not, not economically profitable as in generating cash. We accept that's impossible. But profitable enough to get the analysts on Wall Street saying it's a strong buy. Yeah. Okay, so you could manage that. Why isn't he managing that on a consistent basis? Because he's, because he's got a lot of credibility issues, picking the public fights like the pedophile thing, the 420 friendly tweet, going after uh, critics, uh, retaliating against whistleblowers. It gets to the point that even the parrots on Wall Street have had enough that they don't want to repeat his bullshit anymore. You know, he's, 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 kind of like, he's kind of like the crook that's overstayed his welcome, the likable crook that's overstayed his welcome. Is, is there an end game for Tesla? I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Is there an end game for Tesla? Yeah, hope. Hope and prayer. He's hoping that one day this company will become profitable, that some kind of magic will happen. Well, you know, so far, all he's gotten was like, uh, you know, a profitable one quarter, then 10 more losses, then profitable another quarter, then three more losses. The companies, uh, I, doubt, I doubt very, very highly that the company will ever make money on a sustainable basis and maintain itself as a going concern. So what happens as the end game? Uh, is it that the, it just simply fails to raise money in the bond or equity markets and goes bust? Or is it yes. that he finds some patron saints who will buy it at a knockdown price. Well, you can always find some sucker to take over a company. That's how the Crazy Eddie fraud was uncovered. A long investor believing in the long-term value of Crazy Eddie's took over the company from under us in the hostile proxy battle. So there's always suckers out there that will take over the company. That's, that, that's not a, that, 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 what's gonna probably happen is, is that they'll, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll probably blame it on the fact that they can't raise enough capital even though uh, profitability was around the corner. At a certain point, people are going to have enough of Elon Musk and Tesla. Do you think, what would happen, by the way, if Elon Musk was to disappear for whatever reason? Uh, uh, no, whatever reason, Elon Musk is tomorrow not CEO of Tesla. Is that a chance for someone to go in and swoop and buy it? Or is that the symbol that time that all the plates which he's been spinning crashed to the floor? I think it's the latter. I think it's the, uh, everything starts crashing once he's gone. So there's no scenario where he moves aside, finds a grown up to take charge like the late Jeffrey Epstein he's and been fighting, uh, uh, the company fight, moves on. Right, he's been fighting that tooth and nail anyway, as, you, as you've seen, because he knows once he's gone, it all collapses. So there is no happy solution for Tesla. No, there's no, there's no. Uh, in in New York terms, I'll just say this: there's no happy endings here. Okay. Uh, going to move on to another one. Alibaba is that a fraud? Yes, I believe Alibaba is a fraud. That I've done extensive research on. 
Why do you think it's a fraud? And why is it that, I mean, you know, Sam, you're just a humble accountant. I've got all of Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and all these, you know, Wall Street giants. Uh, they've made huge fees. Uh, uh, I don't know if those particular houses have, but houses like them have made huge fees uh, uh, floating this company and publishing uh, numerous sell no uh, buy notes from the sell side analysts. Why should I believe you, not them? Because Alibaba is engaged in a lot of incestuous relationships with its investees, uh, special uh, that don't get fully um, uh, properly accounted for in its financial statements. Um, you have a problem with Alibaba with what's known as variable interest entities that some of them should be consolidated but weren't consolidated and vice versa. You have an issue whereby they're running capital expenditures through unconsolidated uh, subsidiaries, which increases their um, free cash flow on the, on the consolidated basis. There's all kinds of accounting tricks going on with Alibaba. Alibaba is something that when you get to the bottom, you find a new bottom, and then you get to another bottom. It's just that it, it's just a series of related companies doing business with one another to inflate its profits. Is there a real business in there which is yes, making yeah, a I, real profit? Tesla is a real business. Alibaba is a real business, and so is the fraud that I uh, that that I ran. The crazy Eddie fraud was a real business. You don't have to be. Uh, All frauds are It's very rare. Fraud, not every fraud is Bernie Madoff. In fact, most frauds have a real business in there. It's just that what is presented to investors is completely different on a different scale to the real business. Right. The difference, however, is Tesla, I think we can uh, uh, agree that unless you are made CFO, is never going to report sustained profits. Uh, uh, forget about cash flow. That's, that's just for geeks like me. But it's never going to port, support, uh, report any sort of profit to keep the Wall Street analysts uh, happy with their buy notes. Alibaba... Is there a business there which could generate some sort of profit? Yes, it's just a question of, of, of inflating its reported profits. And also, don't forget, unlike the UK or unlike the United States, in China fucking uh, Eastern European, I mean, in China fucking US investors and Western European investors is okay. That's their state policy. Yeah, fucking Eastern European, I think you're thinking about women here, and let's not go into that era, Aaron. Your presidents and other things, but uh, 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 you're talking about fucking Western investors. Is think is cool. Yeah, in China that's okay. The government likes that kind of stuff. They want their companies to do that. Right. So how does Alibaba play out then? Well, Alibaba is Chinese, China based. It's one of their largest companies, and um, you know, <laughs> the Chinese government is going to stop them, stop them from cooking the books. There's been an SDC investigation going on forever into its bookkeeping. I think it started in 2015, if I'm not mistaken, maybe 2016. It's been going on forever. Uh, we'll have to see what happens. Do you not think perhaps that the current uh, uh, slightly chilly relations between your country under your new great leader uh, and China uh, might actually be a spur to political pressure to the SEC to nail the poster boy for China frauds overseas. I would hope that that happens because the only thing I like about Trump is his China policy. I think he's right on that China is a bigger 
enemy of the United States than Russia is, that China has been engaging in economic war on the United States and the West. I, I would hope that that hap I would hope that that happens. One of the few Republicans that has his hand on the you know the hand on this that knows exactly what's going on is Marco Rubio when it comes to China. Uh, uh, to be fair, your president's got not bad taste in women as well. What? Can we not agree? Your president's got okay taste in women. Um, I'm not so sure about that. Okay, moving on. In the UK, we had a case a couple of weeks ago of a company called Gold Soccer Centers, which runs soccer pitches for people, uh, uh, in the sport that your women are the world champions at. And it admitted that for the past 10 years, its accounts have been complete works of fiction. Uh, should the auditors not have spotted that? Yes, they should have, but, you know, the, the, the buzzword here is audit. Most people think audit means that they go in there, they do a thorough examination of the books and records, and they, and they correct any mistakes and everything is clean. But that's not the real case. Auditing is just taking relatively small samples and trying to project based upon those samples, which should be easily manipulated. The word audit should never be used. It creates a false sense of security amongst investors. At best, these, these so-called audit firms, at best, the, the work that they're doing is really a, a limited review of the financial statements for compliance with the generally accepted accounting principles or um, uh, IFRS uh, uh, principles. So when the audit firms, as they say in Britain time and time again, fail to spot fraud over a whole decade or whatever, uh, they say, but it's not our job to support fraud. You'd kind of agree so with that. So why are you calling? So yeah, exactly. Wait. That's, that's what gets me. If it's not their jobs to spot fraud, why are they fucking calling it audits? Why are they calling it audits? For what reason? Uh, because they're, they're paid vast amounts of money. That's right. That's the whole thing. False sense of security. So would you say, do you place any credence whatsoever in the audited numbers of a public company? No. It's kind of like this, okay? Um, a murder happens. Uh, he didn't, he, the person wasn't murdered, they just died, you know? <laughs> you know, the way it's, you know it's, it's a play on words. What about, do you think some audit firms are better than others? Should I be happier investing suck. in a company audited by KPMG rather than by a mom and pop firm in, in East London? Of course, you're probably better off with a bigger firm. Uh, generally speaking, a, a three-man firm ain't going to be able to audit a large billion-dollar company. Uh, but, you know, um, in general, they all suck. The whole culture sucks. The, the, the audit firm which you legged over year after year at Crazy Eddie's was KPMG, wasn't it? Uh, our last three years as a public company, that fraud was looked over by, was audited by, Crazy, by uh, KPMG. For the 14 or 15 years before that, we had a small accounting firm called Penn and Harwoods while we were a private company. Is, uh, the, the, is it a, a warning sign for you if the, for a firm uses the same firm of auditors for years and years and years and years? Do you think it's healthy if firms change auditors? 
or doesn't it matter? There's two schools of thought on that. If you keep the same auditors, they do have better knowledge of the company, but at the same token, uh, they uh, at the same token, um, sometimes you need a new set of eyes to catch things that haven't been caught by the same set of eyes. Two two schools of thought on that on uh, on auditor uh, turnover. Do you think where uh, a fraud has gone undetected for many years uh, that the auditors should suffer some sort of sanction? Yes, absolutely. What sort of sanction would be appropriate? If they have investors suffered. Here's the problem. The problem is that the firms get shamed. What about the individual auditors in the firms? They should be shamed or the audit partners should be shamed. Is shame enough? Well, of course it never is, okay? But you got to do something. What else are you going to do? You can't hang them. You can't, we're not trying to, we don't hang auditors. Not that, not that they hang any auditors that screw Americans. Well, um, but okay, but no, shame, because uh, we do have it in the UK now, that increasingly the auditing watchdog is naming partners of audit firms and saying they didn't show sufficient professional skepticism, yada, 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 and then fining them an amount which is token compared to their wealth. But they just say, you know, the people at Quindell, Games Workshop, Globo, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, very long list, uh, they were determined to commit fraud. They would have hoodwinked anyone. I'm moving on. I will try and be a bit more careful next time. Surely there has to be more. There has to be a financial sanction. There should always be a financial sanction, okay? And a meaningful one. And a meaningful one, yes. So a multi-year multiple of their takings? Yes. That would be a deterrent, you think? Yes, something that makes it hurt in the pocket. Okay. Right, if now... You know, in the crazy Eddie case, there were people that got indicted that went to jail, Eddie Antar. Now... His dad was never indicted, but was convicted in a civil case and ended up broke, and the government took over $20 million from his dad, his entire wealth. Sometimes the best way to uh, go after rich people or people that, uh, is to take away all of their money. Eddie was your cousin, right? Yes. So his dad was your first cousin once removed? No, his dad was my uncle. His dad was your uncle, right? Right. So his dad was never indicted, but he died broke. Why? Because the SEC sanctioned him. He lost a civil case in court, uh, and uh, he was declared a fraudster by a civil court, not a criminal court, and he ended up to die broke. Do you think, actually, that that would have been a deterrent to any member of the Antar family had they been told, you might die broke and shamed? Well, you, you, deterrence is overrated. Um, but the absence of deterrence should not mean the absence of accountability and responsibility. Um, just because um, uh, heavy penalties don't necessarily deter most fraudsters or a good portion of fraudsters, okay, that doesn't mean we still shouldn't have heavy penalties to, to extract res uh, accountability from people. In other words, the prisons are filled with people that never planned on being there. Obviously, the people that are in prison were never deterred from committing crimes. <laughs> Otherwise, they wouldn't have committed the crimes and ended up in prison. But what still, you need, you need to have accountability.
What deters you from committing a crime? Again. Me? I'm 62 years old. I've had enough of this shit. Okay. Right. No, I, I, don't uh, the, I don't need the aggravation in my life. Notice I'm not giving you a moral argument. I'm giving you a practical one. Okay. I understand. Now, over the past week in the UK, the big story has been a company called Burford, uh, which uh, is involved in funding law cases. Uh, it's come under a big uh, attack from Muddy Waters. Uh, but it, Muddy Waters isn't the only bear of the stock. Uh, your friend Matt Earl, uh, your friend Daniel Yu at Gotham City, uh, your friend Tom Winifred for Share Profits has been bearish for a while. Um, I know that you're not an expert on Burford per se, but I want to ask you a few questions uh, just generally from this case. Um, if you were setting up a business and floating it, a fraudulent business or one that overstates its profits on Wall Street now, how does this corporate structure grab you? You are not on the board. You're the mastermind. Your wife or your girlfriend is the finance director. She's not on the board. The other, your co-conspirator, your cousin, he's not on the board. Uh, instead, you get huge salaries, but the board is three patsies who are just non-execs. Is that not a good corporate structure? Wouldn't that have worked for crazy eddies? Well, you always, in every crime, you need co-conspirators, but you also need enablers. Uh, enablers give you the credibility with outside people uh, to uh, commit to commit more crimes to make your sins to make your lies more believable. So if you can have a board of patsies, okay, that's fine. That helps you commit your crimes, makes your crimes a lot easier. The, the, the chairman of this company is 84 years old. Uh, it wouldn't be unfair to say that his best days are a couple of decades behind him uh, and that his main concern now is uh, the quality of care and the extras offered by the blonde Swedish nurses in the nursing home. Is he an ideal non-executive chairman for our next venture, which we float, Sam? No, but I'd like to, I'd like to know uh, what nursing home he's in with the beautiful nurses. So when I turn to be his age in 20 years, I'll end up there. <laughs> I'll ask him next time I see him. Now, the thing about Burford, which I don't get, is the company uh, books profits on transactions that are yet to complete and whose outcome, that's to say law cases, is uncertain. And it therefore is paying taxes on profits which are yet to be received. Why well, would anyone Eddie's do that? Crazy Eddie's pay taxes on fictitious profits because you get a bigger bang for the buck overstating your income as a public company and overpaying your taxes than understating your income as a private company evading your taxes. So that's not uncommon, overpaying your taxes on fictitious earnings, assuming, of course, the earnings are fictitious. Number two is there's a saying that every American lawyer uses and tells their clients that you never know what a jury is going to do. I learned that from the federal prosecutors that came after me in the Crazy Eddie case, from the defense lawyers that, 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 um, that defended me in the Crazy Eddie case or represented me. Uh, you never know what a jury is going to do. You never know the outcome of any trial. And to be able to try to predict the outcome of, of a trial, uh, and to report profits on it or the outcome of a civil litigation is, 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 is ludicrous. So you believe that if you were running Burford, and you know, there may be a vacancy soon, if you were running Burford, 
uh, the prudent way to do it is simply to report profits as they are booked. Pretty much, you know, there's a whole accounting rule about the realization of profits, and it's, very, very, it's much more conservative as to uh, the accounting rules in the United States about accruing revenues per se than about accruing expenses. And it's, there's gain contingency rules. It's uh, FA, it used to be known as FASB 5. I don't remember what the latest uh, incarnation or, or regulation number it is. But generally speaking, it should follow something closer to a cash basis than, uh, than, 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 um, than, than other items. In other words, you should really have to be very, very um, certain before you can accrue um, uh, gain contingencies. Gain contingencies meaning rev, uh, gains from uh, the uh, the effect of litigation. I mean, the, the American accounting rules are very, very strict on uh, gain contingencies because this is a business of gain contingencies. It's not really like, um, Tom, I just sold you a stereo. I didn't get the money yet, but I feel certain that I can book that revenue because I know you're going to pay it. You gave me your credit card number. You have net worth, whatever. Over here, this is something different. This is this is this is this is a different animal, whereby the you're betting on the outcome of something that hasn't happened yet. It's not like goods and services have really been delivered yet. Got it. And presumably, of course, with, with what's, what's in the future. Now, to be fair, they could you know um, they could they could underestimate also. Who knows? But I just think it's um, uh, from for financial reporting purposes. Okay. Uh, Putting aside the issue as to whether they're estimating the outcome of these cases accurately or materially correct, putting aside that issue, I would be um, I would uh, I would find it very troubling that they can accrue any kind of revenue based upon my knowledge of the United States gap. Okay, good reason to list on the AIM Casino, the world's most uh, 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 serious growth market and lightly regulated one. Now, Sam, a final question. If I could just tempt you back into a life of crime, a career in fraud, and say, I've got an idea about floating a business on Wall Street, and we're going to make lots and lots of money. And I've got, have I got you tempted yet? Yes, multi-level marketing. It's the most legal. Uh, it's, it's the greatest fraud of all time. It's legal, it's legal in the United States, even though in a lot of countries it's illegal. Multi-level marketing, selling hope to, to people that uh, se se selling se selling hope to uh, to people that, um, that 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 are uh, that that are yearning to better themselves, and unfortunately, uh, ninety-nine percent or ninety-five percent of these people that get involved in multi-level marketing lose money. It, sure, a multi-level marketing has been a, an obvious sort of thing for you and I to uh, to make a killing on Wall Street. Uh, Herbalife uh, sort of springs to mind uh, over many years. But aren't the new opportunities for potential fraudsters these days? Are, are you not interested in the world of cannabis, for instance? Uh, problem with, with it, I, I really don't know much about the cannabis business. Um, you know, one of the things also that you could look into, and again, you'd have to, you know, this would be for a different, for another podcast. It's halting with uh, crypto security, with uh, securities, uh, crypto, that sort of stuff. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of charlatans in that space too. So, so maybe for uh, for your Wall Street comeback, 
we should be thinking about a, a multi-level marketing cryptocurrency players as the way forward. Yeah, something like that, possibly. I mean, um, there's always, uh, every day somebody conjures up a new scheme to screw people. But not you, Sam. Now, final thing um, uh, I asked you last time, but uh, any news uh, on when I have to fly to New York for you and I to uh, uh, go to the set of the Crazy Eddie's movie? Crazy Eddie movie, they, uh, John Turtletaub uh, was just appointed the director. He's the guy that did the National Geographic films. The script was uh, is done. They're in the process of casting uh, uh, actors for the uh, movie. Uh, so we still got this problem. Done. Brad Pitt not available. Who is to play Sam Antar? That's the not, only Brad Pitt is not handsome enough to play Sam Antar. That's one of the problems with the movies that there's, it's impossible for Hollywood to find somebody as good looking as me. Indeed, the Adonis of the crime scene. Okay, on that note, Sam, thank you very much. I'll see you in New York before Christmas on the set. Thank you. Cheers. Wow! Wasn't that amazing? Sam Antar, he doesn't hold back in his opinions. He's incredibly honest uh, about his dishonesty and other matters. Uh, and he's also very, very funny. Uh, health permitting, I really do plan to go out to New York this autumn uh, when they finally get around to shooting the Crazy Eddie's mo uh, movie uh, to meet up with Sam on set uh, and maybe record another podcast then. If you've enjoyed this podcast, uh, I hope you have, uh, and you can't wait another seven days for our next podcast. I can't remember who our guests are, but there's a possibility we might have a company CEO on next week. Anyhow, uh, we'll see. We'll see. If you can't wait seven days for another podcast, well, why not dig into your uh, wallet and sign up to Share Profits? Because every day of the week, I produce a shorter podcast, uh, about 20, 25 minutes. Uh, it's called Bearcast. News, views, analysis, breaking stories, annoying companies by revealing that they're about to do a placing. I don't hold back on my views either, and generally, I'm right. Anyhow, it costs just $5.99 a month to subscribe to Share Profits. That gives you access to all of those Bearcasts, one a day. It also gives you access to nine other articles a day, uh, generally on the bear tack, exposing companies who are committing fraud, who are lying, who are over-promoting, of whatever size and whatever UK market they sit on. Uh, we don't hold back. We're the only sites doing that. Uh, we don't get funding from companies, uh, so we have no need to pull our punches. Uh, it is entirely subscription-based. Uh, so the more people who support us, the more bad guys we can expose. So please uh, do sign up to Share Profits uh, for Bearcast and our other excellent articles. And I'll be back next week with the sixth edition of Share Profits Radio. Thank you very much for listening. Man of